Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Thanks for joining us. This week, we are joined by former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. There are so many good ones, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Please check out their links in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, I am very excited about Harry Reid. Uh, he was one of the most formidable uh, <coughs> Senate leaders. Uh, he has made the Democratic Party in uh, the state of Nevada. He was early on talking about UFOs when people thought it was crazy. They no longer think that. So we're going to have a, a terrific interview. Yeah, he's just one of the most amazing people in modern American politics, I think. And what he's done to that party, for that party out there, is just stunning. And he's a he's definitely his own man, <laughs> to say the least. There's no question that. Back in Ronald Reagan's days, that was Paul Laxalt's right. party. It's now Harry Reid's Correct. party and has been for a while. We, we've got a couple things to talk about first. Uh, we'll leave it to Senator Reid, the great expert, to talk about the Senate and how Biden's doing and all that. There's a special election in New Mexico next week, James, for the uh, seat vacated by Interior Secretary um, Hovland. The Democrats are going to win. Biden carried it by 23 points. But the Republican campaign is all about Democrats want to defund the police. And learning from 2020, the Democrats need to address this head on. It's a lie. When the, you know, I read a piece in Politico the other day, and the Democratic candidate said, well, uh, when asked about this, it's a convenient political narrative that he is repeating over and over again in order to reframe the conversation. No, that doesn't work. It's a lie. It's not what I'm for. If, if, if she, uh, who apparently is a well-qualified candidate, has uh, misspoken before about these issues, clarify, correct, whatever have you, but don't let them control that so agenda. I, I have a piece coming out. Of, right now we're putting the finishing touches on exactly what the venue is going to be. The, the, crime is an issue. Get over it. Don't take it off the table. Don't pivot to something else. Take it and go to the basket. The truth about crime is this. Every president since Bill Clinton has inherited a declining crime rate and has left office with an even lower crime rate than when they came into office. Get that through your head. When crime went up, it was during the latter part of the administration of Donald J. Trump. And this is not a surprise. When you have an administration that is essentially a criminal enterprise that is dedicated to driving a wedge between Americans, all right, and having this kind of attitude, this is what you get. Now, the, the, the Democrats, you know, right now this police reform bill is on the cusp. I think something is going to happen. They better do it quick because that shit I just saw in Louisiana was sickening, it was just utterly sickening. So we're not, you know, we can, we can have de-escalation training. That, that's good. That's a good use. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that'll be somewhat in, in, in the reform bill that they're working on right now. But you're exactly right. 
The defund the police shit is the, one of the more counterproductive things I have ever heard. And we can't pivot. We can't talk about move to health care. We have to address this head on. They have a really horrific record on crime. And what they say is, oh, well, James, it's Democrat cities that do this. Well, by the way, Atlanta and Baltimore and Philadelphia and Chicago and New Orleans and Houston and Los Angeles have always been Democrat-run cities, and they experienced not big decreases in violent crime, really impressive increases until the administration of Donald Trump. He should own this. Well, I, <clears throat> I agree with you, and I think there is some hope in this bill that uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass Senator Cary Booker and Republican Senator Tim Scott are working on. It's not going to go as far as some activists would think, but there are things to be done. I mean, there are things to be done for reforming the police, not defunding the police. Some places you need more police. I mean, New York City was a big, you know, six months ago, defunding the police was kind of, you know, among the uh, the, the, the elite uh, uh, glitterati that was popular. Now they're talking about a rising crime and what they're going to do about it. Some of these communities need more cops, but they need better cops with Absolutely. better procedures, better training, uh, <clears throat> more accountability. That'll be a big sticking issue. And whatever they finally resolve with uh, uh, Bass and, and, and Booker and Scott. But uh, <clears throat> the, the, we had that wonderful professor on from the University of Pittsburgh three or four months ago. There are things that can be done. It is not defund the police. Quite the contrary, it is reform the police. Correct. Correct. And it's not that goddamn complicated. But I'm going to tell you, the Democratic consultant class, I can already hear them, you know, on the Zoom calls and the conference calls, you know, saying, you know, we got to pivot away from this. This is this is a Republican issue. No, it's not. The only thing the Republicans own is the increase in violent crime under their administration. You know, Bill Parcells, who's reputed to be a pretty fair football coach, once said, you are what your record says you are, which I agree with. Yeah, uh, we've been through this before, <clears throat> back during the Nixon era and some during the Reagan era, too. Uh, it was big crime in the streets and uh, the Democrats are soft. And <clears throat> when uh, it, it ran its course was when Democrats joined the issue, not when they capitulated on the issue. So let's hope they do it. Again, this time, James, on the economic um, inflation front, I guess you caught Larry Summers is stepping up his warnings about Biden overspending, about the Fed dangerously underestimating inflation. You just can't dismiss anything Larry Summers says as an ego trip. There are very few economists of Larry's stature. My, I, I don't pretend, I don't pretend to be anywhere near that. I'm not an economist. But look, I think we're going to have inflation with tight labor markets, strong demand, a booming economy. It's inevitable. The question is whether it, how long, uh, how much and how controllable. If we have three or four percent inflation for six months a year, uh, that's OK. We can live with that. If it's bigger, if it's five, seven percent, whatever, for longer, that's a real problem. Uh, and um, I think summer has summers has raised the right issues. I think his warnings may be a little bit overheated. I don't know, but I read a story, and, and employers are complaining because the first thing when you interview a prospective employee, they want to know how much money they're going to make. Well, duh, really? And that's bad news? I, I, I mean, if they want to get peop more people in the labor force, well, they might have to pay people more. And I, I, if that is part of the problem, I really don't consider that to be a very large problem. 
that you know if McDonald's wants somebody, they can't pay them seven twenty-five an hour. They got to pay them ten twenty-five an hour, and I'm supposed to be concerned about that? I'm not. I'm not. No, I agree. I agree. And there's some places, James, that it's just outrageous. I we probably talked about this before. But, you know, in America today, we pay more for parking attendants and for gardeners than we do for home health care workers. So I hope there's some, I, you know, I'm not going to get at all upset if there's a huge increase for some workers in America. There ought to be. I, 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 you know, and I, I, think, I think some upward pressure on wages, of course, it's going to be somewhat inflationary. But, you know... People, wealthy people have done well. They hadn't had any inflation and, you know, they've driven everybody into the stock market and everybody's made, you know, how long this lasts, I don't know. But the fact that, that workers are starting to get some leverage, you know, labor has some leverage in this, I, 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 I don't know why she should be upset about that. Now, you know, people say, well, yeah, Jay, they'll get more money, but things will cost them more. But, but right, right now, the lower one quarter of our population's totally fucked. And if they get, you know, a little bit less and we get a little bit more, I'm all for it. Well, uh, you know, at the Fed, uh, being soft on inflation is, uh, is, a, is a sin. When Alan Blinder was named to the Fed, Alan Blinder, who is a very He's progressive a uh, capitalist, capitalist liberal, terrific economist, you know, some right-winger said, well, he, you know, he's like a communist, and somebody told someone at the Fed, no, no, he's just soft in inflation. And the person at the Fed said, that's worse. So there is that long history at the Fed. But I'll tell you, I have enormous confidence in Jay Powell, and I think that whatever inflation we have, and we're going to have some, uh, I think this Fed uh, is in all likelihood able to, to uh, keep it under control. We're simpatico on that, James? We are simpatico. I, I mean, I, I, okay. I think people are right to worry about it. But it, it's not necessarily going to be a, a, a terrible thing. You're right. It looks like Powell and I, you know, people like the Fed, they, they watch this stuff pretty closely, I, I, I got to say. And it's, I, I, I don't know enough about it to get much deeper than we got. Yeah. <laughs> you waded through our deepest right. thoughts in some of this stuff, James. You wouldn't get your ankles right. wet, but that's, that's okay. Right. <laughs> I got one I think we disagree okay. on, yep. okay? Chris Cuomo, a CNN anchor, was advising his brother, the governor of New York, on how to handle Andrew's multiple, multiple charges against Andrew of sexual misconduct. Now, you know, of course, any sibling who, siblings love each other, they're going to talk. And when there's a problem, of course they're going to talk. Where Chris Cuomo crossed the line, in my view, was participating in Andrew's political strategy calls and then not disclosing that to CNN or his viewers. His role as a supportive brother is one thing. That's, that's okay. His role as part of the governor's political team is unacceptable and unethical. I think CNN ought to write him a parking ticket. I, I just, I, and I, I got to tell you, I think the country is, it's his brother, right? I, I mean, I'd do anything if you, your brother's in trouble, you, you ride to the sound of gunfire. Now, if he was on air, you know, issuing talking points about it, then if I was CNN, I, I, I would be upset about it. I, I, I just have the head of CNN say, look, that you, you got to notify us when you're doing something like this. It's not good. I, I, again, I'd just give him a parking lot ticket and move on because people are, yeah, you're right. It's, is, is it the most, does it violate some journalistic standards? I'm sure it does. 
But and a brother defense is just a powerful defense to me. Well, but it's different. Uh, those standards matter. Uh, I think a, a, a anchor on a primetime cable news show is like an editorial writer or a columnist for a newspaper. When I was at the Wall Street Journal, we went through this twice. There were two editorial writers who were fired, not because of what they wrote or what they thought or what they talked to people about, because they secretly participated in partisan politics. When Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson do this, they privately advise Trump, we dismiss them as media hookers, if you will. Chris Cuomo is no different. It's fine to talk to his brother. It's fine to love his brother, but it's of a piece. The lapdog, touchy-feely, numerous interviews that Chris Cuomo did with the governor during the COVID, uh, those were embarrassing. The governor secretly gave Chris Cuomo uh, COVID uh, uh, protections when others couldn't get it. I mean, it is, it is much more than a slap on the wrist. It is much more than a parking ticket. Won't make any difference, but it's a permanent stain. I, not permanent. It's a stain on Chris Cuomo at CNN. It's his brother. If the people at the Wall Street Journal editorial board were colluding with their brother or their sister, I, I wouldn't be that, you know. I, I just think, and I think people around the country, and I'm just running this by, you know, people out of pretty liberal that aren't journalists, it's, oh, come on, man, it's his fucking brother. What do you expect him to do? And, and a sort of sloppy, it was wrong to, to get, put him ahead of the vaccine line. It was covered. The, the, those, like, I don't know what you call it, schmaltzy interviews. I don't know Yiddish that well, but they were kind of an embarrassment. But I don't, I just, I'm just not, this doesn't bother me that much. And I'm partly, you know, I'm partly a CNN homer, but I'm, no, no, uh, and I'm not a CNN uh, adversary yeah, either. And again, I want to stress, there is nothing wrong with him having all kinds of private conversations with his brother. You love him. You care about him. That's great. No problem. But when he becomes involved in political strategy with the Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo political team, that is different. And that's why I, I'm not a huge Chris Cuomo fan to begin with. I'm less of one now. But it's good we had something yeah, we could yeah, disagree on. Park. Give him a ticket. Let's go. Next. <laughs> I'd suspend that license for a while instead. Anyway, okay. Hey, James, we've been doing this podcast for two years, but we have today one of the most special guests we have ever had on. Former Senator Harry Reid, 30-year veteran of the United States Senate, 10 years. He was a Democratic leader. No one understands the Senate and Washington better than Harry Reid. And as a bonus, he also was early on and and asking questions about UFOs and uh, what was going on here. Senator, out in out in Vegas, we thank you so much for joining us. Um, I want to start off just by asking, you know Joe Biden well. You were close to Joe Biden. Uh, he's doing well as president. Did he make a, a miscalculation in thinking he could work with these Republicans? I think he's doing the right thing by showing everybody that they're unworkable. But that he's doing the right thing by showing them what they are, and that is obstructionist, period. So you don't hold out any hope for any bipartisan stuff that really matters? No, I don't. I don't. But I, I repeat, I, Joe's doing the right thing by showing the American people that he's tried and how much, Senator, can he put into the so-called reconciliation? I know it's inside term, but it's where you only need 50 votes rather than 60. Uh, yeah, can he can put in the kitchen sink and the icebox included. He can. And would you advise him to do that? Yes, he, yes. He, but he's doing the right thing, I repeat, for the third time by showing 
the Republicans are not capable of working out any fair arrangement with the uh, Democrats. Um, I think that uh, we can do reconciliation. I think, as I, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times quite some time ago, and every chance I get, I indicate that the filibuster is on its way out. It's not a question if, it's a question of when. You can't have a democracy where it takes 60% of the vote to get things done. And the Republicans, in the, when they were in control of the Senate, there was only a manufacturing base for judges. And uh, I'm convinced that it's a matter of time, uh, not very much time, that the filibuster will be part of the history. One of the key figures in whether that or when that can happen or can't happen is Joe Manchin, who you also served with in the Senate, I think uh, on you know very friendly terms. Uh, give me your sense of where Joe Manchin is today, what he might do, even more than on the filibuster on the so-called S-1, the bill that would prevent some of the voter suppression that Democrat, that Republican legislatures are... are I think, are Joe, I, I'm sorry, I think uh, Manchin will go along with the voter number one bill that the Senate is going to take up. I think they'll do that initially, and I think that Joe will go along with that. But some of the other stuff, I think, is going to be a real heavy lift for Democrats to get Joe to go along with. Yeah, tough state. Uh, James Carville, um, you're a huge admirer of Harry Reid, so take over. I am. Admire is probably a mild word to say it. Uh, I would point out uh, to our audience that Nevada has two Democratic women senators and that the Nevada legislature is majority female in both the House and the Senate, and that is in a large part due to Senator Reid. So I will tout your horn for you, Senator Reid. So I'll go right to what I'm interested in. This UFO thing has gone very mainstream. It's now in the New Yorker. It's in the New York Times. It's in everything. Many years ago, you took up this issue when, frankly, a lot of high-level media types thought this was a kind of flaky thing. What is it that prompted you to take such an interest in this, and how, how did it come to be that you've been more than anybody to lead on trying to investigate this? Well, of course, I was... Uh advised by my staff and my friends to stay the hell away from the issue. But I got interested in it for this reason. Um, a man who wrote a letter to a person here in Nevada by the name of Bigelow um, sent me this letter. He said uh, he wanted uh, to take a look at uh, the future of rocketry. He said, I know where rockets started. I know where they are now. I know where they're going to be. But what I don't understand is all these unidentified flying objects. And he said, I think we should look into that. And uh, a couple things. Uh, I had been asked by a CBS uh, anchor, television journalist by the name of George Knapp. And he said to me, uh, there's this meeting that's going to take place. I want you to attend it. And I attended, um, and it was an interesting meeting. It had a bunch of scientists, a lot of uh, just people interested, and it's a few oddballs. And uh, I came away from that uh, more curious than ever. And when that man from the Defense Intelligence Agency um, made contact with me, I 
felt I should do something about this. I talked to John Glenn about it and um, just out of curiosity if he thought there's anything to it and he certainly didn't say no. He, but what happened is I called in a way Hawaii and Stevens from Alaska in one of the classified rooms in the Capitol and told him, I said, you know, I'm really curious about these unidentified flying objects. I'd like to spend some taxpayer dollars saying what there is in this. And Stevens was just like a snap of your finger. He said, oh, thanks. He said, I, I was a pilot in World War II, and I was a, there was an object off to my left wing, and uh, I would go up and down and around, and it was, it was there all the time. He said, I got low on fuel, so I went, we landed. I went and asked air traffic. I said, what is, what was up there in the air with me? And they said, we don't know what you're talking about. So, uh, Stevens, I repeat, uh, was an easy sell because he had had this experience in the war, World War II. And so when I suggested to them that we spend some money and check it out, again, uh, even my own staff said that there's a little chance to take up this issue, but I did. And uh, with the money we spent, which was $22 million, we came back with this. I thought there would be a few people to see these UFOs, but when we got the information back, it wasn't a score of people that had seen them. But hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people had seen them. And there was no logical explanation for them. And I got a call from a woman by the name of Helene Cooper from the New York Times. And she said, I understand you're interested in this. And I said to her, I'll be happy to talk to you. As long as we don't talk about little green men, we talk about science. She lived up to her bargain and wrote a very, very compelling story that got this started in the public eye. It was uh, really remarkable. The information we got showed that there was something out there we needed to study it thoroughly. And we did that. And uh, we came up with a lot of questions, but not too many answers. That's how we got started in all this. So, Senator, you've of course, no one knows, and I'm not. If if if, if you think it, what do you suspect this is? Just is it? Uh, is it? Do you have any idea? Do you have any James, suspicion? James, I've given a lot of thought to that. Uh, what I do know is that there sound evidence that we have these UFOs. The pilots and sea captains were not advised to report them because it would hurt their promotions and uh, the Pentagon wanted no part of that. But as time has gone on, the military now demands that their pilots and sea captains report these occurrences. And uh, as I said, we have lots of these occurrences. I mean, when I say lots of them, I mean a whole lot of them. Now, I don't know what they are, but I do know that there could be some explanation for the atmosphere being such that this day was was not 
one that was explainable. Uh, but mainly what we have are what, what they are is unidentified flying objects. Uh, again, you ask what they are. I don't know, but I just know there's something out there. And we would be so much at fault as a government if we didn't do everything we could to try to figure out what they are. And the Pentagon, to their credit, is now requiring their pilots to report all these things. And they're not just uh, unidentified flying objects. They're also strange occurrences uh, in the, the oceans. The, you know, how we had within the past month report of uh, these huge uh, dirigible lookalikes that are in the air and they just went into the ocean and disappeared. So um, the Russians, led by somebody that used to be head of the KGB, had 30,000 agents. They're looking into it, I guarantee you that. I guarantee the Chinese are looking into it. We know that France is. So I think that we are on the right track. I think that Congress, uh, after we spent the money that I got for looking into this, now they have a report coming out next month a task force. I don't know what they're going to come up with, but I'm glad they're finally looking into it because the federal government is not being transparent in what they know and what they don't know. Well, I, I, I can tell you, just, I'm going to turn it back over to Al, and, but I, this is one American. I think I joined every listener of this program to say that we, the country was very, very, very fortunate to have someone of your you know, courage and effectiveness. You know, some people are effective, but they have no courage, and some people have courage and they're not effective. I can't think of anybody in modern American politics that has demonstrated more courage and more effectiveness than Senator Harry Reid, Dean Nevada. So I, from from my point, as a friend of yours and an admirer of yours, I, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, not just for our friendship, but for the magnificent contributions you've made to, to your state and our James country. One thing I do want to say is this. Um, I was told, as I've indicated to you already, that um, don't get into this. It's going to ruin your career. But frankly, it hasn't ruined my career. Um, I think that uh, the American public is interested. They want transparency. And do we have all the answers? The answers, absolutely not. But at least we're trying to get some answers. Well, you asked a question. Let me ask you one more question about this and then a couple of political questions. Have you ever discussed this with Joe Biden? Not him personally, no. You don't have any sense of his, his views on this and whether no, he'd like I to don't. look into I, it? I, I, yes, uh, I've talked to Steve Rachetti, uh, his number one or two person. Uh, so right. I've, I've tried to keep up, keep the administration uh, in tune with what, I, what I'm doing and what I've done. Let me go back to politics. Uh, 2022, usually the off-year election for the party in power uh, is is bad. The Republicans are going to engage in gerrymandering, really partisan gerrymandering, voter suppression in state after state. Uh, is the outlook bleak for Democrats next year? I believe year? that um, the Republican Party is trying to find itself. I, am, I feel very strongly that we need a two-party system. We're the envy of the rest of the world. We don't have, it doesn't take months and months to get a coalition to form a government. Well, ours is 
seamless. It's worked out extremely well. The problem we have, and I look forward to 2022 in this regard, is that the Republican Party is not strong political party like it has been for the majority of the time we've been a country. And right now, because of the chaos created by Donald Trump, I really don't know if the Republican Party is going to be able to mount a strong offense this coming election. Normally, I agree, history, after a president is elected the first time, Congress is not good. But history is based on averages, and I think this may be a break in the trend. I, I think that the Republicans are seen as incompetent uh, in many views, unpatriotic, and it's the party of Donald Trump, not the Raiders party as we've had in the past. Senator, I just have always wanted to ask you this question because you were such a master of the Senate. Who, who were the, just if it quickly comes to mind, who were the two or three of the best legislators? The best legislator I served with in the United States was Senate? David Pryor of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love Senator David Pryor. Pryor. Jesus Christ. You got, you got a couple David more? David Pryor was extremely good. Dick Durbin has been good because yep. of his ability to speak on any subject and make it sound good. So he's been, a, I think, a stalwart uh, indicator that Congress is a body that is still one where people can speak and people will listen to them. So Durbin is really quite good. Now, this may surprise you, but I found one of the best legislators was Richard Shelby of Alabama. He carried the, uh, his cars were very close to his ass. But I found him to be extremely competent and good. Uh, the, uh, in his own way, it's a good list. Uh, Pat Moynihan, outstanding legislator. He had a lot of personal quirks, but he was really good about understanding government and what it should be. As uh, one of my friends said, that he had Moynihan had written more books than he read. That was a quote from Dale Bumpers. So I think that was a, just a <laughs> fan look at who I feel is really, has done a good job in the Congress. So, so Senator, I have, I have one final question. I'm flying into Las Vegas next Monday. Will I land at McCarran Airport or will yeah, I land at Harry yeah, Reid uh, Airport? Yes. Reid Airport, but it's not all the signage and stuff is not done. Not all the legislating and everything is done that needs to be done. Just it'll take care. Well, I, I am so excited that I, I, that they they doing this, and I, I can't. Now I've always loved Las Vegas, and and now my favorite airport after MSY is LAS. Hey James, <laughs> it's a, James, it's a I very so fitting enjoy thing. your yes, sir. appearances on TV, uh, and just to indicate you're such an idol to me, I've got my hat on today. Okay, <laughs> Senator. I got to tell you, you you are as 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 sharp as you were during those in those those extraordinary years in the United States Senate. We can't thank you enough for joining us today to talk about politics, UFOs, and everything else in the world. Best of luck to you, and I hope we'll all see you in Las Vegas at, at, when we come into the Harry Reid Airport. Absolutely. Thank, thank you, sir. It's one of the big honors of my life to interview you. Thank, thank you. you, sir. 
Hey, is there something keeping you down and preventing you from achieving your goals, particularly during these difficult times? It isn't always easy, even for us. And nothing is more important than staying on top of your mental health. Agree, James? I, I couldn't agree more. And it's just from what I know about this, in, in mental health, you, you talk about where the 1% gets something and the other 99% don't. I mean, if you, if you took where psychiatrists are located, it would be overwhelmingly in prosperous parts of prosperous cities. And, you know, ask anybody. I think this is, this is just terrific. And I've always, you know, I've had people, you know, mental health advocates talk to me, and I think they have really good point here. And I think this is something that can, can bring, you know, real impact on mental health to, to a lot of people that don't have it. We're talking, of course, about better help, better help. And BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, where you can start communicating in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is 24-7 worldwide, so you get secure professional counseling with expertise that might not be locally available, as James said, in many areas, wherever you need it. Log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor for timely, thoughtful responses. You can even schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with others. It's affordable, and they give you amazing therapeutic matches that you can change at any time. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. From a user of BetterHelp, clients of BetterHelp are saying, I want to quote now, I'm amazed that I can connect with a counselor online using this platform. Tanya listens, provides solutions, and helps me create powerful affirmations to rewire my brain to manifest positive transformation. She's gentle but affirming. Uh, this is really important after, as I say, what we've been through for the past 14 months. So take your life to the next level. Visit betterhelp.com slash warroom. That's betterhelp.com slash warroom and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Politics War Room listeners get a 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash warroom. Just visit betterhelp.com slash warroom and take your life to the next level today. All right, James, now to our favorite questions and answers. At least the questions are always good. I hope the answers are okay. You know, the biggest problem with this segment is we get so darn many terrific questions from people all over the globe that it's hard to pick six or seven. And so those, if we didn't pick you today, I promise, come back. Uh, we'll pick you next week. John in Long Beach, California, wants to ask, what advice would you give to DNC Chair Harrison to keep the House, expand the Senate, and take back state legislatures? And he adds, James, will you, LSU people, please stop stealing my beloved Ohio State quarterbacks? <laughs> well, we didn't steal them, y'all. Let Joe Burrow go. <laughs> he didn't start him. So, <laughs> okay. All right, John. Yeah, John Long Beach. Uh, is the Queen Mary still in Long Beach? I don't know. I, I think I, it is. I, I think it so. must be. Yeah. I would say the most undervalued thing that, that Jamie Harrison and Sean Lonnie can do is recruit well. 
be sure where you're challenging somebody's rep- Republican seat. They've got to cook PVI of, you know, plus R plus three uh, to D plus three. Recruiting matters. All right. And, and I think right now, like Val Demings running for the Senate is almost a perfect kind of position you want to be in and a perfect kind of candidate you want to look to uh, because this crime shit is real. And we recruited well in 2018. They recruited well in 2020. Uh, you covered, you know, covered, a, I don't know how many different congressional cycles. I think recruitment is a very under, underrated dynamic here. It is, James. It's critical. And though most of the recruiting will be done by November, the Democrats uh, sweep New Jersey and Virginia. That helps. That says, hey, that's usually an indicator that the next year may not be, uh, you know, maybe pretty good. So uh, recruiting and recruit is at the state legislative level, Jamie, please, at the state legislative level, recruit as best you can where we, if we have where we have these races. There's not very many in this year, but wherever they are and start recruiting 2024 state legislatures. Oh, God, that 2010 result is we, we're still paying for and made for years more. Second question comes from Tim in Chattanooga, who asked, how should we handle individual Republicans like mine, Chuck Fleischman, who refuse to publicly uh, meet with constituents or say how they voted on the Cheney ouster and their refusal to investigate 1-6? Well, first of all, Tim, uh, you, you're probably not going to beat Fleischman. That's a, that's a 60%, 65% Republican district in Chattanooga. And he's not going to relent because they're hiding. Uh, but you ought to go and uh, do the old Joe Lewis. They can run, but they can't totally hide. Every time there's a meeting, go to it. You know, protest, if you will, in front of his office, peacefully. Uh, just keep, don't let him get away with having the issue disappear. Uh, that, I, I think, destructively is what the Tea Party did in 2010. There's no reason that you can't do that on these issues because people who voted against a refusal to even investigate what happened on January 6th, much less the way many of them almost defended, is something they should not get away with. Well, Chattanooga, I ought to talk about Chattanooga here. First of all, at that one time, I don't know if this is still the case, it was the most wired city in America. They had more broadband access in Chattanooga than any other city in America. But one of my favorite Chad, a story with you, because one of my favorite stories in American history, and I always, when I'm talking to Democratic groups, I, I generally always try to tell this story. And it was during the, the Battle of Chattanooga in the Civil War, and the, the rebel army occupied something called Missionary Ridge. It's a, it's a geographic feature that's still prominent in Chattanooga, and the, the Grant was leading the, the, the Union forces, and they, they were doing trying to do a flanking maneuver. I think Sherman was on the north flank, and uh, I forgot who it was. It was, was, was on the south flank, and it wasn't going very well, and, and Grant was in his command post at the base of, of Missionary Ridge, and he looked up, and all of a sudden these guys were charging up, up up Missionary Ridge, and he looked at his Rollins, and he said, who ordered those soldiers up there? He said, nobody, General. They just went. All right? So that Al's advice is good. Don't wait on orders from headquarters. Just go. And, and uh, uh, interesting <laughs> tidbit, the, the guy who led them was one Arthur MacArthur, who won the Medal of Honor for, for the charge on Missionary Ridge, whose son became— a complicated person, I think, more of an asshole than not, but had some 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 
remarkable qualities, Douglas MacArthur. So I, 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 Chattanooga is one of my favorite places and the source of one of my favorite stories ever in American history. And Al is right that, you know, the hell with it, just charge, man. Just go up the ridge and, you know, try to change as many minds as you can. Hey, James, Greg in Sarasota, Florida, wants to ask you, it seems to me that Kamala Harris has an off-putting personality, condescending. Do you think she'd be willing to be coached on the way she presents herself, or is it too much to ask of anyone in their 50s? I'm worried about the ticket in 24. Well, first of all, anybody that doesn't want to be coached, that's already, that's, there's something wrong with it. There are more effective ways that people can communicate, and you're always trying to learn that. And, you know, she could probably, to be fair, there's no one, you know, Bill Clinton had a coach, all right? There's no speaker, communicator in the world, but Michael Sheehan would help us with debate prep, all right? There's no, there's nobody that, that, that can't benefit from, from, from somebody that's really good. Now, some of these people are just full of shit, all right? But you can tell them after 10 minutes, but any communicator can always use good communications uh, strategy. And, and yeah, I, I, I agree. And Greg, I think, uh, I, I think she will do that. Uh, if I have any concern about, about uh, Vice President Harris, this would be as a top of the ticket person. It would be whether she can expand what was entirely a much, much too insular and not terribly effective campaign staff she had when, in that ill-fated run for president. But, you know, she can grow. Uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people have. Biden certainly did better when he ran for president than he did in his previous, his previous runs. James, we are geographically um, um, dispersed today. Will in North oh, Dakota wow. says, wants to know if I think Speaker Pelosi will retire and will Leader Hoyer and, and Whip Clyburn retire with her, who would be their prospective replacements? Um, I, I think if the Democrats should keep control of the House, I think it's perfectly possible that Pelosi will serve for two more years. She has kind of ducked the question. But, and the reason is simple. If they keep control, it's not going to be my much. And there is no one else. There's some talented people there. There's no one else who can work Pelosi's magic and control both the squad, if you will, and the, and the mainstream quasi blue dog Democrats. She's a remarkable leader. If they lose the Majority, she will certainly leave as Democratic leader. Uh, and I think Akeem Jeffries of New York is probably the leading candidate to succeed her in either post. Uh, but there are others. Yeah, it, it, I think Hakeem, I, I, I like him a lot. And I, I, I think he has the potential to be a job. But you're right, there are brothers, and, you know, we'll have to flush this out. But, but one thing is clear, that we're going to have to, like, figure out Democratic leadership, and, and I'm saying this is a 76-year-old, all right? We're going to have to, you know, some of these younger voices are going to have to, we're going to have to promote them and push them up up the ladder here pretty quickly. And I, I, yep. I, I yeah, yep. did, you know, De Gaulle once said the graveyards are full of indispensable people. Right now, Nancy Pelosi is as close to indispensable as any human being can be in a Democratic Party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, best best speaker of my lifetime, maybe the best speaker ever. Uh, that's how good she is. Uh, and I've had people who were great admirers and even close to Speaker Tip O'Neill 
say Nancy Pelosi is the best, uh, uh, which is a remarkable, a remarkable compliment. Hey, Zella in Los Angeles, James wants to ask you, you, you and your guests have been painting a very grim picture of the country. Why is it that we have the house, we have the Senate, we have the presidency and are still unable to move our agenda? Because we don't have it by much. I mean, I don't hope I, I hope I not have a, I don't, I don't say maybe I need to be more optimistic, um, but I, I was, you know, I thought our party should have done better in 2020 than we did. And I don't, we got, what, a four-vote majority in the House? We, we're dependent on the vice president to pass anything in the Senate. The, the, the courts are totally stacked against us. And a lot of it, I think, from thievery, just out-and-out out thievery. And I, I, I can't act like, I, I would be dishonest to me to say that, I, look, I'm so relieved Donald Trump is not president, I can't tell you what it's like. But I, I think there's a lot of work to be done here, and we gotta, we gotta, we can't deny that we got some issues that we got to deal with. Yeah, I agree. Uh, James, our, our next is from Peter in Jakarta, Indonesia, and Catherine in Hobart, Tasmania, and they are chiding me as they should for last week when Marty asked a very good question. Marty lives in a suburb of Perth. Uh, I thought it was coming from, uh, and I mispronounced it, uh, uh, a, a place called, actually called Su, Subiaco. And they point out that that is actually a suburb, and they told me the way you pronounce it. And I want to thank Peter, and I want to thank Catherine, and I want to apologize to Marty. But James, you know, um, as you know, we do an annual event in Washington, the Gridiron Dinner, White Tie, and, and my wife, Judy Woodruff, and I, and, and we, we in- introduce all the guests there, and there are all kinds of ambassadors. And when it comes to the ambassadors, she introduces the ambassadors from India and from Pakistan and from Eastern Europe and from Africa. And I do Canada and England and Australia. I can screw up a pronunciation like almost no oh. one you ever met. But Peter, Peter and Catherine, thank you. So, so I'm glad your name is Hunt because I can't fuck that up. But anybody else, I can't. So I, I, first of all, I, I've been to Jakarta. And if you think traffic in Washington is bad, or you think traffic in, in you know, Atlanta uh, uh, Los Angeles is bad. I got news for you, dude. You haven't seen traffic until you've been to Jakarta. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, it's it's a fascinating place, and uh, I had a, a, a bunch of meetings there and everything. And it's 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 a, just it's a dynamic country. It's one of the most interesting countries in the world. Most people don't realize this. It's the largest Muslim country in the world, and. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's a fascinating place, and I I want to go to Tasmania so bad. And I've I've been to Australia, I've been to Sydney and Queensland and Darwin and stuff like that. But before I, but I still can, I want to go to Melbourne and then I want to go to to Tasmania because it's just an interesting culture there. They do really interesting things, and I'm so glad that we have listeners from that part of the world because I, I love that part of the world. Catherine, if we get there, we want to have a drink with you, and you can tell us how to pronounce things. Yeah. But thanks, uh, thanks for writing, James. We got Larry in Juneau Beach, uh, Florida, who points out he's an old Miss grad. He said, I grew up in Mississippi in the 60s and early 70s, so I feel qualified to speak. Why do black and brown Mississippians not get organized and vote out the Jim Crow government and their ignorant Governor Reeves and the racist Senator Hyde Smith? Mississippi, he worries, seems content to perpetually stay in 1968. Well, 
first of all, Cindy Hyde-Smith might be the most undistinguished person to ever serve in the United States Senate. I can't say most. Uh, a close call, But she's, she's, she's definitely, she's definitely on, on the ballot, okay, right. whether or not she, you know, right. she's right. double, you know, first ballot. <laughs> uh, look, I, I have, like I always thought, first of all, I, what we need in Mississippi is, and, and I've tried to get to these, these Democratic groups, we need to do a lot of voter registration in the Delta. Mississippi has the highest percent of African Americans of any state in the United States. It could potentially vote thirty nine percent. And and also, what what I, I I am just stuck on this, and I cannot get any movement on it. We need to figure out a way to effectively communicate with younger Black voters. All right, everybody. The, the tried and true formula is, you know, we go and you run in Mississippi and you do the you do the churches in in, in Jackson and the Mississippi Delta and you do some stuff on the coast, and that's it. We're not. We, we need to break through. And th- there's some outstanding young Democratic legislators in Mississippi, uh, and we've got to promote this. And we have got to get the younger Black vote more engaged. And if you get if you get where you're getting you know, a 38, 39% contribution, then you're, you're in spitting distance. But we're not going to do it with the same turnout model we get every time. But I, 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 I think Mississippi has a better chance to turn blue than Louisiana does. Probably even better than Alabama, yes, too. I, I, I agree. Because uh, if you get, James, that 38, 39%, that means you only got to get 20, 25% of the white I vote. I think I did the back and, of the envelope and, calculation. It's 22. But I, 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 yeah. But, but, but it... And that's doable. And, and by the way, they, 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 there are some kind of educated, you know, Oxford and, and Starkville and Hattiesburg and even the South Haven, those Memphis suburbs, you know, uh, Madison. There's some, yeah, there, there, there are yeah. some, some educated white Democrats that are, that, that are very available to, to, to us. So it, it's not impossible. Yeah. But like I said, it's much better than Alabama, Tennessee, or Arkansas, or Oklahoma, you know, right. places like that. West Virginia, yeah, West, Kentucky, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's well, there was they, a, they, but they got to make a major investment, and I, I and every time I, I talk to high end funders and particularly black funders, you know, I don't, I don't seem to get very far on that for some reason. Well, Mississippi wasn't built in a day. James, so uh, keep uh, uh, I mean, keep I'm, I'm broadcasting right. from Mississippi today as we speak. <laughs> all right, guys, keep those keep those emails and questions coming in. I apologize to all those we didn't get to today. We'll try to get to you next week or the week after. They are terrific questions, and James, I remain dazzled by our geographical. I do too. Reach. I love it, man. We got we got everything from Mississippi to to Hobart to. Jasmine, yeah. <laughs> Jakarta. Hey, James, uh, the outrage of the week, and then we have something to talk about uh, afterwards uh, for a little bit. Uh, look, I, I think we've already run through the cast of cowards investigating the deadly mob assault in the Capitol January 6th, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, Rick Scott of Medicare fraud fame and the others. But, you know, I'm going to give a special nod uh, to a family. Uh, That's Congressman Greg Pence, 
who voted against an investigation and accused Speaker Nancy Pelosi of being a hanging judge and pushing a, quote, hand-picked jury to carry out the what he called the execution of Donald Trump. Hey, I am sure you cleared that all with your brother, Greg Pence, but never mind that it's a lie. It was, a, it was the Trump mob on January 6th that yelled, hang Mike Pence for the vice president not violating the law on the Electoral College vote. The Pences have sold their souls thinking that somehow Mike Pence will be back in 2024. I want to tell you something, Congressman. It ain't going to happen. Mike Pence is history. And if there's any doubt, Trump will sell him out as a loser the way he sells out everybody else. Well, I'll just say this. I'd much rather have Chris Cuomo for a brother than that asshole. <laughs> say what you want. All right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I have my brothers and not either one of them. I, I, that ain't a close call. That's the most idiotic thing you can imagine. My outrage of the week is that I don't know what the adjective I got putrid, disgusting, whatever. This video of these Louisiana State Police literally beating this guy to death and apparently t taking some pleasure in doing it. I, I, it's just it's gut wrenching. I, 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 I don't know what to say about it. It's, it's just awful. And we have to get this police reform that, that Senator Booker and Senator Scott, yeah, Congressman, ba Congressman Bass, who I'm told is one of the most effective and, and bright people in the entire House of Representatives. But for God's sakes, we, you know, I, I, I want to certainly don't want to defund the police, but Man, this thing was bad. I mean, it was, you could say it, you take the George Floyd thing. Derek Chauvin seemed to be indifferent to George Floyd's life. These people struck me as like literally having a good time. And this was, this was not, this was not good. And it has to be addressed. Not good at all. Oh, you're right. It's sickening, James. Uh, you know, we, may, uh, we discussed potential House leaders and I left out Karen Bass. Karen Bass was the Speaker of the California Assembly, and she put together tremendous deals out there, including some with Republicans. She was incredibly effective. There probably is no more, there's probably no tougher legislative job outside of Speaker of the House of Representative, Representatives than being uh, a Speaker of the California Assembly. Karen, Karen Bass is a very, very uh, effective legislator. James, I want to mention last week we had our first induction into the Ivy League Sphincter Hall of Fame. And uh, we got we got just dozens, if not scores and scores and scores of letters and comments and nominees. Uh, and they're really some good nominees. And I want everyone out there to know we're coming, we're going to try to do this. We'll do it second inductees in several weeks. Uh, there are so many strong candidates. I think our initial five was a really good one, but there'll be more coming. And I just want to remind people one thing. Most, most of your nominees have been right on. There have been a couple of people who clearly would qualify for a Sphincter Hall of Fame, but they didn't go to an Ivy League college. So three, three requirements. They got to go to an Ivy League college. You got to be involved in politics. Uh, or public life, uh, and they have to be beyond just a jerk. They really have to be incredibly obnoxious. Yes. And, and, and for, fortunately, I guess unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to be what I, exactly the word I want to use here. We've got a lot to choose from here, but we're going to be very judicious. Oh. You know, we, we love having recommendations. We'll give every, every 
everybody's uh, nomination prayerful and deep consideration. But we got standards, and to get into this, you have to exhibit massive assholeness. I mean, massive. Like, yes, you know, I, I, I can tell you ahead of time, Ken Starr's almost a shoe in, but we we haven't we haven't gotten there yet. But he's only James. We're not gonna. I, we I, we gotta I wait I, I, the process. I understand. I understand. <laughs> but I just you know, at, that's the level right. that I'm talking about. That's the level of nominees we need after this original fight. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And so, but keep them coming in. Boy, you, you make the job so much easier and you, and you make us think about it. So thank you very much. We love our listeners, James. Right. And Bob, we love Harry Reid. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon and keep those Sphincter Hall of Fame nominees coming in. Following this episode, we would really appreciate if you check out the links to our sponsors, BetterHelp. We deeply thank you for supporting BetterHelp. When you do, you make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.